I realize, I realize very well how lucky I have been in my life, how fortunate in the experiences I've had, the, the people I've met, and I'll share stories if it's, I hope, only if it's appropriate in anecdote or in kind of introduction. But there are kind of those random circumstances that, you know, you just kind of like to tell people about. Now, for me, one, one circumstance occurred last April. I was in New York City, and I was attending some meetings. Now, for some, I, I don't know exactly the dynamic, but the meetings were being held in one of the very, very nice hotels of New York City. I wasn't staying there. I couldn't afford it. But one day, as I'm, as I'm going to the meetings, and I'm waiting for an elevator, and I'm in all my blacks and everything, the elevator doors open, and standing there is Jeb Bush. He kind of, you know, sees this priest, and Jeb, as you may know, a convert to Catholicism when he got married, and Father, oh, welcome, how are you, what are you doing here, you know, and we're both just kind of passing very quickly. I am not on Jeb Bush's Christmas card list because of that encounter. Now, the next day, I'm coming off the elevator, I'm all by myself on this elevator, and the doors open, and standing right there looking at me is celebrity chef Guy Fieri. Now, I don't know, now, with a name like Fieri, maybe he was, you know, a cradle Catholic, but I don't think he's been in a small room with a single, with one priest in a long time, let's just put it that way. He, you know, was kind of surprised, oh, Padre, you know, and, you know, we just, he quickly, we kind of passed each other, and have a great day, and he wanted the doors to close very quickly, I think. <laughs> Again, he's not naming something on his, on his restaurant menu after me because of that encounter. We all know people, though, where just one small encounter, you know, in their heart, in their head, kind of gets a little bit drawn out. You know, the people who really do go out of their way to tell you, you know, I hung out with Jeb Bush and Guy Fieri this weekend in New York City, you know, and you're just kind of, Last night, I didn't give as much opening explanation. I just kind of started with the, there's this kind of old, kind of uh, sarcastic line. I was talking to the queen last night, and I told her, stop dropping names, okay? <laughs> Takes a second for everybody to get that one. We do feel a desire. We want the connection. We want that comfort. We want maybe that little bit of that celebrity to rub off on us. I think it's part of human nature, probably not one of the worst things in our life. We, we should have those moments we can claim some, you know, some closeness to fame or in that regard. I think, though, that that human dynamic is important as we unpack today's gospel. Now, this is going to, this sounds probably an odd way to start. The gospel, this gospel passage, which introduces us to John the Baptist, remember how it started. And, and Deacon John did a great job with those names of, the, the names of people and of places, and they're challenging. And all I ever tell him is, just read it like, read it with confidence. None of you know how they're supposed to be pronounced, so. But it starts out with, you know, Tiberius Caesar, and then Pontius Pilate, and then all of the, the, the tetrarchs, and even the, the high priests. This is that moment where, in many forms of literature, but particularly as Luke was coming from a Greek background, this is the way you set the stage for a biography. And Luke is writing a biography, essentially, of Jesus. And this is the key part, beginning his public ministry, John the Baptist proclaiming his coming and his, soon his baptism. Well, 
And one of the challenges with this is the fact that most scholars will tell us that this combination of the people that Luke lists, and Luke's no fool, this combination couldn't have existed the way he said it. It couldn't exist. These people, these people, particularly that combination of the different tetrarchs, not, they didn't all ever have that role of authority at the same time. Or equally telling is naming two high priests. Naming two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. These, to be the high priest was a lifelong assignment. Therefore, you know, to have two at the same time. One of the scholars, though, now, one of the scholars I was reading as I prepared for this was uh, about a 20-year-old resource and said, it would be like telling Catholics that there would be two popes alive at the same time. Okay, things can be. But the scholars, the scholars tell us this is probably setting something else up. Okay, we have, we have that Roman Empire represented in Tiberius Caesar. We have the governance of Pontius Pilate. Boy, that's a name that will ring for us in so many ways in a, in a few months. Then we have all of these tetrarchs, that, that governance, that politics of, of the Holy Land, of Jerusalem. And then we even have the religious leaders of, of the high priest. All of this is being set up, and we have to understand something about this context and how it plays into what we understand about John the Baptist. So let's hold that for a second. We get a clue from both of the first readings. A reading from Baruch. Now, Baruch, wonderful Old Testament, not a long book, stands apart in many ways to the extent that my quick editorial, it's really kind of an upbeat book of the Old Testament, and those are few and far between. I mean, the, the Israelite people were troubled and were, were travailed upon in so many ways, so to have Baruch in there is kind of this hopefulness, and that's what this passage in particular it speaks of how that, that mantle, that glory of the new covenant, that, or of the covenant, that glory of being the Israelite people, will come back to them as they look out on the plain to the east and see the children of Israel coming back. That in that togetherness, in that oneness, in that unity, all that God promises will be made even more vivid and more real. Blessings and graces surround but imagine what it will be like when all come. It'll be as if wearing a mitre or a crown, that the glorious experience. So that's a, this high notion of being drawn together in faith, in covenant. Paul's, or Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now this is, this is good. Philippians is a very kind of journeyman epistle. has a lot going on, but this passage is important for today's purpose because of its reference to how the people of Philippi are themselves being drawn together. There was that phrase where Paul is describing not only his relationship with them, but it's a double meaning. It's their relationship among one another, their partnership in the gospel, their partnership in the gospel. You see, it is in that unified experience that something transforms us and gives us the fullness of the gift or makes it even more vivid, more experiential, more complete, more fulfilling. 
So now we go back to this story of John the Baptist being laid before us. So imagine these first and second century Christians hearing the retelling by Luke himself or maybe people reciting Luke or telling this story. And they start hearing, this is the story of their faith. And it begins with all this high Greek language and imagery in the era, in the age of Tiberius Caesar, in the governance of Pontius Pilate, under the tetrarchy of so-and-so, and all down the line. If you're a, if you're a Christian, this new way, and you're feeling kind of pushed off to the sides, and you're feeling this is really, you know, we're doing something out of the ordinary here, you're beginning to say, wow, you know, we're included among all of these things. We're included among all of these great things, these people of influence and power. But it takes this odd turn right at the end. Just as the hearer, just as the Christian is beginning to get a little puffed up, you can just imagine they're sitting a little taller, chest going out, yeah, this is where our faith is going to be. We're among all the power brokers. And then Luke says, let me tell you about this weird guy out in the desert, son of a small, unknown priest of the temple. He wears animal skins and eats locusts and wild honey. There must have been this almost sense of deflation that, wait a minute, I thought we were with these rich and powerful. I thought we were with, you know, the influential. And now you're going to tell us about the one who everybody called crazy out in the desert? It would be like if in my New York City story, Guy Fieri was going to prepare dinner for, the, for Jeb Bush and I. And Jeb Bush and I were talking about should he run for president again, and Guy Fieri was deciding should I open a new restaurant and name it after Father Paul Hartman, and things like that. And I start telling you all that, and I go, you know, the most important moment of the day, the most important moment of the night, the, most, the key decision was made by the busboy. But that's what it is. It's what it is when the, when the unique moment, when the transformative moment occurs, it often comes in a way that we don't fully expect or even want it to be that way. Now, in terms of an Advent journey, we need to draw to ourselves in this idea of the Israelite people, in this idea of a partnership in the gospel, looking to that most unexpected, that John the Baptist. We need to do that for ourselves. Last year, I, I picked up a book and it, found it compelling. It was an interesting book, not, not especially Catholic. It was Christian, kind of a Christian self-help. But it was entitled, The Seven People Who Help You to Heaven. Now, it's, it's not necessarily kind of this move to humanism because we need a personal relationship with Christ and with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. We need that. But the way the author, uh, Sam Lang, laid it out was just kind of interesting. I'm going to, real quick, the homily's not about the book, but real quick, the seven people he puts into categories. They're not historical people. They're categories of people that we should have in our life. So quickly, and then I'll actually go back and comment on them. The visionary, the prophet, the encourager, the advisor, the mentor, the learner, and the soulmate. The types of people that we should have around us so that our pilgrimage, our journey, brings us to heaven. The visionary, 
I kind of created a summary statement or question for each. The visionary is the one who says, it will be good to go to church. The prophet is the one who, sh who shares, if you go to church, you will gain something, and they'll explain what, what you might gain. The encourager, come on, we got to go to church, like you do every morning, whether you want to or not, Sunday morning. The advisor, when you are at church, try this. The mentor, the one willing to share. For me, going to church makes it possible to do whatever. The learner, you need someone in your life who will learn from you. The learner, tell me why you go to church. And the soulmate. The soulmate, as the author wrote it, is a, it doesn't, I don't think he intended the full double meaning that I think is valuable, because I do think it's valuable to just hear that in the sense of that, that spousal love. The soulmate, going to church with you makes all the difference. We all need these people. This author puts them in seven. Maybe it's five, maybe it's ten, whatever it is. We all need these people around us. The people that will open our eyes, the people that will open our hearts, the people that will help us grow, the people that will make us confident and trusting, the people that, that will ask us to teach them. So that when we are on our journey of faith, it's more complete. The gospel which lays before us John the Baptist is a moment when we have to recognize that even John doesn't do it alone. None of us makes the journey alone. Sure, we can have personal and individualized movement, but we need this transformation. We need others to help us draw down the mountaintops. They're usually of our own making. They're usually of our own self-importance. I've got four brothers and two sisters. Thank, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, I'm in counseling because of that. They take me down off of my high points that if I've made them artificially. But I also have people in my life who help me fill in the valleys. Though I walk through the valley of darkness, the Lord helps me, but people help me. We all need those. We all need those who will help us make straight the, the, the crooked ways, the winding roads, the people who will tell us, come this way, it'll be easier, it'll be good for you. We need to gather this around. The Israelite people, the partnership of the gospel, John the Baptist invoking not only here comes the Lord, but we, we must have a life of repentance, a community of redemption. So this day, this Advent, consider for yourself who you draw close to in this journey. Now the challenge is there's an old cliche, an old adage, if you really want to grow, surround yourself with people who are a little bit different. Ideally, people who are better, people who work harder, people who are challenging to you. If we all just surrounded ourselves with absolute cookie cutters, we would never change. Draw to yourself a John the Baptist type, that crazy guy from the, from the, the desert. Draw to yourself learners and mentors. Draw to yourself all of these, not so that we just exist with them and for them, so that we move closer to Christ and we are more prepared to receive Christ. This Advent, open 
I said in my bulletin column last week as an introduction to Advent, we need to remove the stumbling blocks and blockades, the barricades, and we have to open ourselves. Find help in doing that. Find a, a personal community to do that. Not so that it's just within you and them, so that it's you encountering Christ and you bringing Christ to others. Blessings to you.